Hey folks, and welcome to this week's podcast. It's uh, a sad incident that brings us together this week. Tony Joe White passed away. He was on the program two times. The first time was July 2008, and that's what you're going to hear first. Uh, we talked on the phone and we discussed his whole career. Just kind of, you know, if you're, you're used to what I do, it's just kind of the normal interview. And then he came in with his guitar October 2010, uh, got to meet him, and we cover probably some of the same ground, but he plays a bunch of songs on the guitar so first the phone interview then him live in person with the guitar and i'll say this that he was kind of gentle and kind and uh, he had a lot of vibe if that makes sense he just kind of dripped the vibe uh, really interesting and what you kind of saw was what you get and if you listen to the songs uh that kind of swampy groovy thing was what he was all about it wasn't uh, a fake pose for for us or for the records, it was real. Uh, very interesting. So I'm sorry we lost Tony Joe White, but we can remember him always with his music and uh, his interviews and stuff like that. Hope you enjoy our memorial here to Tony Joe White. Come inside. Come inside, baby. Come. Tony, welcome to WFMU. How are you? Hey, good, man. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm wondering in my head, do you think, I mean, tonight's Saturday, do you think that much has changed in Oak Grove? <laughs> no. I really don't think much has changed down there because they still got the Dairy Queen and they, people, you know, from the swamps and the rivers, they come into town on Friday and Saturday night and they go to movies, circle the Dairy Queen, or there's a couple of places across the border there where you can... Uh, not the border, but, you know, the county line. You can get cold beer if you want to and go to the river and stay all night. It sounds pretty good. <laughs> not bad, not bad. Not bad. That's where you were born, uh, just right near uh, small town Oak Grove, Louisiana, July twenty third, 1943. So happy birthday. You just had a birthday. Hey, thank you, man. Yeah, well, I did. Um, day before yesterday and had a really cool laid-back day. We had um, barbecue ribs and some... Uh, few margaritas and just kick back. That sounds good. Uh, tell me, what was life like there growing up as a little kid? Was there music in your house? That's my first question. Well, on this farm, there's a cotton farm, you know, right by the river that led into the swamps there. My dad had 40 acres of cotton. And so we had five sisters and my older brother, he was the oldest. I was the youngest, so we had five girls in between us. <laughs> My mom and dad and all of them played guitar and piano and sang all the time. So I heard music all my life, you know, and um, just that's what they did. That's what everybody did for fun after work. So you grew 40 acres of cotton, and I assume everybody helped out? Pardon? Everybody helped out with the crops? Oh, yeah, everybody was. When you got old enough, which was five, six years old, then you were, you'd have to get out and help a little bit. You know, I couldn't do a whole lot when I was that young, but once you get up 10, 12, or 13, you're helping a lot, you know, and then nothing feels quite as good as when you come in that afternoon out of the heat and head straight to the river and just dive off in it, you know. And then, of course, later on in the, when it got dark, everybody would break out the guitars and sat on the porch and play. Mostly I would just listen. And uh, one time my brother brought home an album by uh, Lightning Hopkins, the old blues singer. Mm -hmm. 
and I heard that album and turned me around all the way right then. Ah, well, what kind of music were the folks playing? Just uh, folk songs uh, or gospel and country? Huh. And were you were you listening to the radio, or was this the first time you ever heard music like Lightning Hopkins? That's the first time I'd ever heard the blues. Period. You know. So, huh. luckily, I heard someone like that because he was uh, on this particular album. He just played alone. It's him and his guitar and his foot on a Coca Cola box. So <laughs> it's like. That's kind of where I started out, you know, the high school dances. And, so did you, did you and, just grab a guitar and teach yourself, or did somebody show you a few chords? I came to where at night I would uh, sneak my dad's guitar out of his room and sneak it into my bedroom and uh, just try to do a few of the blues licks I'd heard on the, you know, the phonograph record my brother had. Mm. And so it was mostly self-teaching and then dad one time he called me playing and he said here let me show you a couple and he showed me like E and A and B which is like the blues chords you know And but most of it from then on was just totally on my life you know what yeah. I got into so that is, uh, I guess you were a teenager in the, you know, the mid-late 50s, uh, a great time for music, a great time uh, for growing up. Uh, were, were kids going, you know, there was kind of the, the post-war baby boom kids were all teenagers too. I assume there was a lot of opportunity to, to play at dances and things like that. A lot of uh, the kids, you know, like in 10th grade, 11th, wherever we was at at that time, we were all in had gotten into the blues pretty good, John Lee Hook and Lightning. So the school parties or the house parties, we mostly played that kind of music. And then uh, all of a sudden Elvis Presley came along, and he was like just perfect for us because he was a, a white guy who could sing the blues. So we went, oh, yeah, man, that's cool. So, hmm. But mostly it was all related back to that. Do you think if your brother hadn't brought home that Lightning Hopkins record, everything would be different now? I don't know. I've got. I've thought about that a few times, but I think the way that took me over my guitar and everything, it, he was just uh, a match that lit the fire, you know. Because <laughs> I never did really think about nothing else after that. I yeah. mean, it was like I never give another thought to doing anything else. Although I did do a few jobs, a couple jobs on the side. I was always playing either at my house or in a club at night or something. Uh, so you you got a uh, first band together, like you said, really just a bunch of teenagers, and, and you're playing it around. When did you did you think this might be my job, or or this is going to be the rest of my life? Did you think that right away? Yeah, if I thought it at all, I don't know if I even thought that far away. It was just it was just there. It was not a job. It was life. It was like you get up in the morning and. Uh, real early before anybody else would play then and you go to the fields and work and then when you come in you swim hit the river and when you got in you'd play again play the dark so it was like as much of me as walking or talking you know that guitar was always close to me hmm. so tell me about when did it, when you made the jump to I'm gonna write my own songs the jump to what writing your own songs I was in place called Corpus Christi, Texas. I had left Louisiana. Me and my drummer, we'd been playing a few clubs in Louisiana and went to Texas. 
And uh, I'd been doing a lot of Lightning, Elvis Presley, John Lee, stuff like that on stage. And and then I heard Ode to Billy Joe by Bobby Gentry on the radio. Hmm. And I thought, man, how real is that? You know, because I, I am Billy Joe. I was Billy Joe, and I am, because it's like I knew that life, and I knew how real that tune was. So I decided if I ever wrote anything, I would write something I knew about, something real. And it probably was not three weeks later when Polk at Atlanta and Rainy Night in Georgia, all like in a 10-day period, came over me. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. What a perfect song to sort of to spark that for you, too, because I definitely hear some Tony Joe in there. That's, a, that's an amazing story. So what year was that? Let's see, was it about 68 or hmm. 7, somewhere? I can't remember. I remember it was the late 60s, and yeah, that, the hippie flower power thing was going on and all that. I know that you guys, your early band, played uh, a place in, I think, uh, Kingville, Texas, for eight months, six nights a week. Is that right? Yeah, that, that was Kingsville, and then on to Corpus Christi from there for two years. And so that was just, uh, like, was that kind of school for you in some ways? I would say it would be, because that's where you, you know, you need, your guitar licks start coming different ways. Uh, you start messing with songs a little bit. But I did not start the writing until I left Kingsville and uh, was in Corpus Christi playing in a club there that's, six nights a week. We heard a, a few minutes ago, we heard 10 More Miles to Louisiana. I think that's from 1966. I think also that's produced by the great Ray Stevens. Is that right? Yeah, that was the first one. And it's a great record. I mean, it doesn't sort of sound like your sound exactly, but it's still a fantastic uh, 60s record. Yeah, it was, it was okay, and I had just written the tune, and really wasn't the way I was planning on putting it down on tape, but at that time, you know, I was just straight from the club to all of a sudden in a studio with a, a producer, so you figure they know what they're doing, and you just move along, but I always kind of liked the song. It's an interesting, almost Beatles-y recording of that song, I, I sort of feel. I didn't catch the last part. I can't hear your phone. Sure, it's it sounds that 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 recording sounds a little bit Beatles-y. It could it could have been because at that time I think they were happening, but yeah, I never was a you know a huge fan of, of theirs. I was more towards the blues side and you know what I was about to write stuff like that. So I may have had their guitar tone or something might have been in there at yeah. that time. Tell me, so eventually you, you went to Nashville to try to take your songs and get them heard and sort of find out where you might be able to fit into the business, right? Yeah, I had about six songs saved up on a little reel-to-reel tape, and uh, my wife at the time was teaching school, and I was playing six nights a week at the club. So we saved up enough bread to uh, for me to take off for a week and go to Memphis is where I was headed. And for some reason, when I got to Memphis, I just took a ride, got on Highway 40, and went on to Nashville. I knew that it was a real country and western town. I was going, you know, this is real stupid, carrying some blues teams up to Nashville. So it was a kind, of that kind of a reception that afternoon. I walked around a few record shops, 
clubs, this and that. And they said, man, you drove a long ways for nothing. <laughs> and so that night I went to a club and the bouncer at the door, he knew a guy that knew a guy that knew another guy. I had a phone number and that phone number the next morning was uh, Bob Beckham at Combine Music. Probably the only guy in the whole city who would have listened to a little bluesy sounding guy like me, a white guy. And I went over the next day and um, played him about four or five pieces of each one of the tunes. All of a sudden he had me in the studio and said, let's see how it sounds in here. And anyway, from there it went on to Monument Records and took off. Yeah, it's an, it's an incredible story. I mean, just how fortunate for you. I mean, I, I have a feeling you're right. It, the, the, the magic was there. The fire was there. Somebody was going to find it. But what a great way to, to just find the needle in the haystack and, and connect right away. You end up in the studio, uh, I believe, with Billy Swan producing you, right? Yeah, Billy Swan at the time was just really, we were just friends. Him and um, Chris Gustafson, me, Dennis Lindy, a bunch of us all hung out at that same place. Bob Beckham's Combine Music. It was uh, always open doors late at night, whatever. If you came in there at 4 o'clock in the morning, there'd be somebody playing a guitar or a song. So Billy and me just become friends. And he didn't go into the studio as like, I'm going to produce you, do this or that. It was more like moral support, and it was good. Just make sure it doesn't get ruined in there. Were yeah. you playing with, like, the Nashville Session Cats? They were at that time, but all those boys were uh, from uh, Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, were in, they were in Nashville trying to make a living because nothing was happening down in Muscle Shoals. And then all of a sudden, uh, a guy drives up from Louisiana and Texas. He's playing pretty funky, and they got a chance to let out their stuff, you know, because mm. they'd been playing a lot of country and western. And, and then all of a sudden, they, they let it go, man. It was fun. Those are, yeah, those are amazing records. They sound so real, so fun. There's also some nice touches, like a lot of the songs will be these very, you know, like you feel the gut, but then there'll be some string section over it or something that kind of makes it sound a little bit more like a finished product. Yeah, Swan, he come in later and did uh, some overdubs with the strings. Uh, I done went back to Texas and back to the club in Louisiana and everywhere but then. And I heard him at first. I thought, you know, this don't feel like my, my deal, but I kind of thought, well, we'll see what happens. The horns and folks out of and stuff like that. Yeah. It all worked out, and uh, most of the tunes were like one takes, you know, folks out and all those were like, everybody just jumped on it and was into it. Yeah, there are some fantastic records. I mean, I spent all week listening to Tony Joe White records, and there's just some great, great stuff there. If anybody doesn't have a, a Tony Joe White record, go out and buy one tomorrow because it's just some great stuff. Uh, the first few singles didn't really go anywhere. All of a sudden, uh, the song Sol Francisco, which we just heard, broke in Paris, France. Yeah, it was all the same album, and um, it while I was still in Corpus Christi at that club and all of a sudden I got a call from a disc jockey in Paris and he said hey you've got the number one tune in Paris today I said what's the name of it because <laughs> I didn't even I didn't even know they'd taken it off the album and 
was around the world like that, you know. How funny. And, and so all of a sudden, here I am, um, a couple of weeks later, I went to France, just man, a guitar, and, I, and by the way, a Coca-Cola box, so that's what they had for my drums. <laughs> and, man, it was so weird, all these people were coming to these shows, like, big halls and whole you know, 2,500, 3,000 people, and they were dancing and stomping around just like down in Louisiana. I thought, this is pretty wild. Yeah, and and it kind of spread all over Europe, and you're sort of still revered over there in that same way. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's like I just got back uh, a month and a half ago, back from France and Europe, and, uh, and we're headed back over in October. So it's like every year we go at least two two to three times over there in Australia. So it's like once the people kind of get with you from the front, they they stick, you know. It's like they want to say, hey, what you going to do next? So each year we keep moving right along with it, and uh, America's cool with me too. I mean, I've got <laughs> plenty, of, plenty of people here that care about my music. It's just over there we get a lot of radio play and people hear you more, you know. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, people there care more about what adults want to listen to. In America, people don't care so much anymore about what music adults like, I think. Yeah, and that, and there's the flavor of the week thing, and so many choices. And mm-hmm. it's like over here, people can love someone for one week and their music and everything. And then all of a sudden, so many choices to listen to, you move on to someone else next week. So you kind of understand it all. To me, it's. It's all good because I get to ride and play my guitar and travel the world, so I'm in good shape with it. Yeah. Uh, 1968, the single Poke Salad Annie comes out. Uh, it finally enters the charts July 69, and it's a top 10 record for uh, a few weeks. Uh, I think, is that the biggest single you ever had? The biggest one I had on myself was yeah. Poke. Yeah, it made it up to number four, and and then right after that, uh, Brooke Benton followed up with a raining out in Georgia, which I think went to two or one in a lot of places. But those two songs were always just, I thought, just a lucky happening for me that they would have come out early in my life and allow me to play and do my music the way I want to. You know? Well, uh, Pokes Allen Annie is one of those records that I think when people think about 60s music you know that song is just one of you know it's going to be in the soundtrack of of people's life forever you know it's just you were all over the place that song was everywhere and as we were playing a bunch of uh songs that you wrote and recorded just before we were speaking to you on the air I i was thinking maybe one of the reasons there's so many versions of these songs is because they're not exactly country songs they're not quite r and B songs they're just the the most basic you know, they're just songs, you know. That <laughs> <laughs> I understand what you're saying because it's like poker one time was like in the top five in country and R&B and pop on the pop side. At the same time. Yeah, I, I, I was looking on the Internet. The number of people that have cut that song and have cut Rainy Night in Georgia, I mean, I could find about 100 people that cut Rainy Night in Georgia, and there's probably more. It's one of the songs everybody just wants to get their teeth on, sort of. Yeah, it's one, it's one of the songs, like, I try to do most all, any tune I write, I just try to make it 
real and you know once a title comes to me or a guitar lick or whatever it's like from there on it's when I mess with it I try to mess with it in a way of just making the tune good making it not think about radio or number one chart record or who's going to cut it or who this or that so I think once they come through me and out of me they're almost laying there in a form that a lot of people could can dig and get a hold of. When you first heard Brooke Benton's version, did you think this is something special, or did you just think this is another one of the hundred versions that's going to get cut? You know, that was the first tune that I've, I've ever had cut. Oh. Another artist. And uh, at the session, when I did it on the album, there was a songwriter called Donnie Fritz. He's from Alabama. And uh, he said, man, I, let me make a tape of that Rainy Night in Georgia song. And there he said, there's someone I want to give it to. And a few weeks later, he had given it to Jerry Wexler, and Wexler had cut Brooke on it, and they sent me a single about three months later in the mail. I was living in Memphis then, and I heard that single, and I played it 62 times in a row. <laughs> I thought, golly, this because when I first did it, I really wouldn't think much about it. I was mostly into fast, swampy blues and that kind of thing. And then when I heard Brooke sing it, I went, man, i got to learn this song, you know? <laughs> it was like, He's he teaching. did it that good. <laughs> That's interesting. you got to cover his song. <laughs> I know it. <laughs> yeah. Cover the cover, man. Yeah, his version is its kind of haunting. It kind of makes you well up inside, yeah. It's something. Uh, Elvis Presley covered a bunch of your songs throughout his career. Uh, did you ever get to meet Elvis? Did you ever get to meet Brooke Benton? Did you cross paths with these guys? Yeah. I have been around and either played with them all on the session with the guitar or I've met them backstage or this and that. But Elvis actually flew, uh, his producer called me and about a year or two after Polk Saturday it hit in America and that he wanted to fly me and Leanne to uh, Las Vegas to watch Elvis do it live on stage and record it. So they flew a big Learjet down to Memphis, picked us up, and stayed out there a week and watched them record it each night. And then we'd hang out in the dressing room later and play guitars. And it was just really cool. I mean, it was like sitting down talking to your brother or somebody. And it was so funny because... Uh, I used to, with the early days, you know, have my hair fixed like him and was doing his songs on stage and, you know, plus the blues and everything. But he was a huge influence at first on me. Yeah. And then here he is doing Pope. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, let's talk about Willie and Laura Mae Jones. A fantastic song. And like you were saying, there's kind of the protest era, the psychedelic era, and it's kind of a, you know, the civil rights era. It's a thought-provoking song. And lots of interesting versions. Uh, Clarence Carter is his version very interesting because African American guy, and he kind of turns the song around. Did you catch heat for that song? Did people understand it or misunderstand it? Within Army, yeah. Most everybody, including Europe and Australia and America, uh, all understand that song to the T. They all sing the words for me and and know the whole thing and there's always most always the question is asked is who were they and they were real and 
they live pretty close to us, you know. In fact, all the tunes uh, with the characters in the Swamp Song, stuff like that that I've got are, are real people. Sometimes I change the name here or there, but it was all real happening. So Old Man Willis is a real crazy guy. <laughs> yeah, he was he was real as you can get. Oh. And he was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, your songs have been covered, yeah, by Hank Williams Jr., Waylon Jennings, Nancy Sinatra, Ray Charles, uh, Roy Head, B.B. King, Tom Jones. I mean, the list is really endless, endless. I, and like you were saying, uh, Poke Salad Annie, Rainy Night in Georgia, I, I not to, to pry into your personal business, but I would assume from a business standpoint, uh, you could have written those two songs and, and just retired to the top of a mountain from the, the checks that would come in. I mean, that, that must be great. If, if you had wanted to, uh, that possibility could have very well happened. But then, then again, you have to go back to the boy, 16 years old, when that guitar first wrapped around him and said, you're going to do this, this is you from now on. So you couldn't stop if you wanted to, right? Oh, no, man. It's like, as long as I still write, and right now I've got about four tunes that's not finished. I'm working with two or three people, other artists wanting to get together and do some things. And uh, as long as stuff comes like that, you know, how could you walk away from something that's given to you like that? Yeah. Uh, critics have called the music Swamp Rock. Is that a name you're okay with? Yeah, I'm okay with it. Uh, but it started in France, in Paris, uh, when I went over the first time on San Francisco. And the media and everyone started calling it Swamp Blues, Swamp Rock, and it kind of stuck. And then it really stuck. And then I got back to America, and Polk's Island was starting to click and they started calling it swamp rock and so i went you know it's a cool name we'll let it go because i am from the swamp so it's good yeah it's fairly accurate uh during that time you were on tv all over the place you were playing the song everywhere you were on tour with uh, i think steppenwolf sly and the family stone credence clearwater all these big acts was that a was it a crazy i mean that was like the drug filled crazy time in america was it crazy for you or did you were you still the guy from the swamp you know, I was right in the middle of all the of all that, you know, and for some reason I was pretty lucky all my life. I never did really get off on anything but a few cold beers, uh, maybe a little red wine or something like that. So mostly I was just hanging with my tunes and my guitars, but I was around a lot of heavy stuff and and it was so funny because in them days, a lot of the festivals and everything, the Isle of Wight and places like that, when there were 600,000 people there and sliding a family stone and stuff like that, you'd have people come backstage and they'd bring you big bags of grass and they'd, and they'd say, hey man, we brought you a little poke. <laughs> brought you a little poke salad. <laughs> and through that period, people was thinking, but that Polk said it was grass. Oh, that's funny. It is. And, you know, folks, are, it's a wild weed that grows down south, and you eat it like turnip greens. Hmm. But everybody has <laughs> some wild times. 
That's funny. Uh, you ended up uh, from Monument go- making the jump to Warner Brothers, and your records got produced a couple of records by Jerry Wexler and Tom Dowd, two guys who whose names are both on a lot of fantastic records, and you recorded some of the stuff over at uh, Muscle Shoals, down in Muscle Shoals, with those guys who at that point... Uh, it's like 1971, 72. We're making the best-sounding records in America, and you cut some really great sides there. What was it like working with those guys? It was really, it was like going home, you know, for me, because uh, most shows is kind of like Louisiana. It's a lot of swamps, a lot of rivers. And when the drummer walked into the session with, uh, he had cut off, cut off blue jeans and no shirt, and he had. He was barefooted and he had fish scales on his feet. <laughs> He'd been just come from the river and was cleaning fish. And Is that Roger Hawkins? or uh, Roger Hawkins. Oh, that's very funny. Uh, he comes walking in. <laughs> I said, hey, this is going to be very cool. That's funky, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, yeah, those are some great records. Uh, you played on uh, a, a, the Southern Roots record with Jerry Lee Lewis, and I just had produced by uh, Huey Mew. Huey Miao Mo, I never know how to pronounce his last name. A crazy guy, the producer, and Jerry always seemed like a crazy guy to me. Tell me a little bit about that session. I actually just did my part at, as an overdub. I was not at the the whole thing. All right, because I've always heard that was quite a party. You made a couple of records in the 70s that were slightly, I think they're slightly disco sounding. Would you agree with that? There was a, a spot to there where I'd written some kind of love, love songs that had some, you know, pretty man and woman type words in it. And uh, at that time, I think it was Donna Summers and someone had something out I really liked. The drums just doing the straight foot kick. And so uh, we cut a few of those tunes. Me and my drummer were just that kind of a kick, but we left out all the BG stuff and the, <laughs> you know all that kind of thing. But I did get stung for that a few times. Uh, people did call it. They said, hey, that's something like this go. But the main thing is everybody was dancing to it. So huh. I just kind of liked the beat. It was simple, wouldn't clutter it up. And then later on, you know, Move back into the old blues, two and four kick, and yeah. Uh, throughout the the seventies and the eighties, you kept making records. And you got a new record called Deep Cuts, where you're mostly it's a kind of new versions of some old songs and some new instrumentals and things on there. And they definitely have a very contemporary sound. I mean, uh, there's some a little more funky beats going on and stuff like that. And I think you recorded it with your son, right? Yeah, yeah, Jody. He's been He's doing um, the last three albums uh, that I've had out. Well, it was one called The Heroines with uh, my favorite girl singers right. with me. And then uh, The Heroes, my favorite guitar players, Knopfler and Clapton, J.J. Kell. And then we always had it in mind to go in and do kind of, I call it, I told him I thought it sounded kind of like Techno Swamp. <laughs> and he said, hey, that's all right. So I would go into the studio like with just me and my strap, my guitar and harmonica and sit down with my foot or whatever for my beat on the analog, reel-to-reel, and just play and do these old tunes, redo them all, just sing them the way I felt them now. And then Jody would come in and take it off the reel-to-reel and drop it over to 
his Pro Tools, and then he would get up into his studio at, over his house at night, kind of like a an old mad scientist left unattended, you know. <laughs> and uh, he picked out all the tunes. He did the whole thing, did all the tracks. How uh, interesting. And it was so good because he actually preserved my, my thing on one end, the swamp sound, my guitar, everything, and added the now on there just enough to make it feel cool. Yeah. You know, I've read some press about this record where they sort of call it a comeback of sorts, but like I said, you've never stopped, have you? <laughs> I, uh, that word's always been a freaky word to me because I I never have thought anybody went away or come back. You're either <laughs> in it or you're not. Huh. That's funny. Uh, I, I know you still love playing. You seem to be a happy guy. Is that generally correct? Yeah, I've got a lot of good things happen to me through the years, you know, and still happening right now. And I've, uh, well, like I said a while ago, I'm up in those Ozark Mountains and I'm getting ready to go try to catch a few fish this afternoon and hopefully play nine holes. So I'll do this for a couple of days up here, maybe get a couple of tune ideas finished up and go back and uh, to Franklin and put it down. Yeah, well, folks can check out TonyJoeWhite.com. There's a, like you said, there's a bunch of dates in Europe coming up all over the place. I mean, you really got a lot. You, your passport must have a lot of stamps in it. It does. <laughs> I've just about, I don't know, I think I've, well, I've already had to add to it. The last, last year we added to it. But between Australia and all of Europe and America, it's like, it seems like there's a lot going on right now on, on the swamp end of things. Mm. and. That's cool, man, as long as you don't take it easy, go out and two or three weeks at a time and then get back somewhere and cool back, rest, and not get wild, it'll be all right. Yeah, I've seen you play, I saw you play a couple of years ago in Austin, Texas, and, uh, you know, you still do a great show, and it's still, you know, very real and, and a lot of fun, so I recommend the folks go out there. Tony Joe White, I've got Poke Sally Annie queued up uh, right now on my CD player. Can, is there anything else we need to know about the song, who plays on it, or do you remember when you wrote it, or when you laid it down, or when you first heard it on the radio? Um, I'll tell you something about Poke Sally Annie that not many people know is, I played that song, I played in this club in Corpus Christi for two years, and I played that song every night at least seven or eight times, for, just from requests, people coming in there and wanting to dance, you know, and before I ever recorded it. So I kept thinking, you know, there's something in this tune, because they even had a dance going to it called The Alligator, and uh they get out on the floor, like sometimes a girl on top and a guy on the bottom, a girl or vice versa, in their clothes and just crawl around like gators. <laughs> so it was like I knew something was happening in the tune, so I eventually finally got to record it, you know, but I knew it was something was going to go on with that thing sooner or later. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much for visiting with us, and good luck, and, uh, you know, just uh, keep making great music, please. Hey, thank you, man. Thank you for your time, and I appreciate the talk. Uh, my pleasure, Tony. Thank you. All right. <clears throat> That's some y'all 
don't ever bend down south too much, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about this so that you understand what I'm talking about. Down there we have a plant that grows out in the woods and the fields. Looks something like a turn green. Everybody calls it poke salad. Poke salad. You snow a girl live down there and she'd go out in the evenings and pick her a mess of it. Carry it home and cook it for supper. Cause that's about all they had to eat. They did all right. Down in Louisiana Where the alligators grow so mean The little dog girl that I swear to the world Made the alligators look tame Poke salad in it Poke salad in it Everybody said it was a shame Cause her mama wasn't working on a chain She'd go down by the truck patch And pick her mess of poke salad And carry it home in a toast sack Poke salad, Annie The gator's got your granny Chomp, chomp, chomp Everybody said it was a shame Cause her mama was a wicked on changing A wretched spiteful Straight razor tote moment. <laughs> Lord, I must take my mess up. WFMU, born in the small town Oak Grove, Louisiana, just west of the Mississippi River. What was your childhood like? Uh, your, your songs, a lot of your songs, are very autobiographical. Is that is that is that the case? Yeah, it was um, actually a little spot called Goodwill, which was a little past Oak Grove, cotton gin, two stores, and we lived down by the river. And my dad was a cotton farmer. And we had seven kids in the family. My brother was the oldest, and five girls in the middle, and me. So I grew up around a lot of 
singing and playing, you know. And you were the youngest of seven. Yeah. Wow, crazy. Uh, what was the music like? I mean, was it everybody in town plays an instrument, or you, did your folks play, your brothers and sisters? Yeah, my mother and dad and sisters, and they all played a lot of, like, gospel and country, and in the afternoons after you, you know, get out of the fields or take a break or whatever, that's what people did for entertainment, I guess. On your records, you play, you know, organs and drums and all kinds of things, harmonicas, guitars. What was the first thing? What did you start with? The guitar was, uh, it's really the only thing I really play, you know, so <laughs> I've overdubbed a couple of things in the studio <laughs> with chords, but the guitar came to me at the age of uh, 15. I didn't even pick one up until then, and I'd heard it all my life, you know, and all of a sudden, my brother brought home um, an album by Lightning Hopkins, and I heard him playing just a acoustic guitar and his foot stomping. And, uh, man. So I started getting my dad's guitar and <clears throat> sneaking it into my room at night. That's when it got me. Rest is history. What does a Lightning Hopkins lick sound like? What is that? Give me a demonstration if you could. Um, this particular guitar with the nylon strings is not the real tone, but his lick would be. in the late 50s, I guess. Is that right? So music was going crazy the whole end of the Second World War and all of a sudden teenagers became a whole new idea in America, you know, and, and rock and roll and stuff. Uh, did that hit where you were in Louisiana in the same you know way that you think of? Yeah, I was still on that cotton floor. Um, I was the last one to leave. Everybody else had kind of went on, got jobs here and there in different spots. But my dad still played on the porch every evening, and my mom sang, and I sat just to him a little bit, but I, like I say, I never did play until so you're 15. I got that going. So, when you're 15, Elvis Presley and uh, guys like that, did they blow your mind a little bit, or was it so hey, different from Lightning Hopkins? Lightning, uh, a lot of kids on the river, you know, back in there, like at um, school and house parties, house dances and things like that, everybody was pretty well in the blues, John Lee Hooker and Muddy Waters, that kind of thing. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, Elvis comes along right after that, and he fit right into our deal because he had a little blues about him, you know, plus a cool hairdo. <laughs> and... Uh, it was just so funny about the, through the years how the music goes, someone being your hero, and then all of a sudden there he is singing your song. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, let's skip ahead, ahead a little bit. Elvis covered a bunch of your songs, uh, and I assume you had opportunity to cross paths with him many times. Yeah. <clears throat> we played uh, in the dressing room a lot out in uh, Las Vegas when he was doing that show out there and recording Pope live. They flew uh, me and my wife out from Memphis to uh, spend the week and watch them oh, sing wow. it live on stage. And then in the dressing room, we'd hang out at night after the show and 
had an acoustic guitar back there, and he'd always get me to hit him a few blues licks and stuff. He really liked guitar, but he didn't play many licks. You know, he just he didn't have to. Yeah. <laughs> well, he had James Burton also. But he liked it. <laughs> uh, not to stay on Elvis too long, but I always think the thing about Elvis that people don't talk about is what a great singer he was, you know, because uh, he's so charismatic, you almost forget that he had the goods to, to back it up there. Uh, what Was he... And he comes off as this shy guy who just wanted to play gospel records and stuff, but he obviously had this other side of craziness too I mean was that all apparent the craziness uh, I had only heard about you know through the years and things uh, taking a a private jet to Dallas to get a cheeseburger and <laughs> things like that wow and uh, but every time I was around him we just sit and talk and play like I say play a little guitar a little blues with him and hanging out it was just like us sitting here talking right now you know and uh, it was one night, I think about the last night in Las Vegas, and I had another friend in the studio with me, not studio, dressing room, uh, James Brolin, you know the actor? Sure. Uh, at that time, him and I was hanging a good bit together because we raised horses together a lot of mm-hmm. And um, I told Elvis, I said, listen, if you ever need a spot to uh, just cool out and get, I've got a place up in the Ozark Mountains. A little river and a cabin. And I was by it. Ain't nobody knows who you are. I wouldn't even care who you are. And he, oh yeah, that sounds cool, man. Fishing a little bit. And so when I left the dressing room, Brolin said, Elvis turned to him and said, "Man, can you believe Tony joined by me to go fishing?" <laughs> and he said. Yeah, you ought to do it, because Jim had been up there a few times. He said, man, you'd really get off on it if you'd go. So a man flying to Dallas in a private jet to get a cheeseburger, fishing would seem a little bit odd to him, I think. (laughs) And did you ever get the chance to go fishing with him? Not him. Rolling and me went up (laughs) several times. But I saw him in Memphis a few times later, Stax Records, things like that. It was always musical meetings, you know. Yeah. Uh, you were in a lot of bands when you were a young guy, when you were a teenager. Tony Joe White and his combo played in, I believe, Kingsville, Texas, for about eight months, six nights a week. This would be right around 1964, is that right? Yeah, 65, somewhere right in there. So is that one of the things, you're in? A, you're the house band in a club and you play five sets or something all night long for kids? Usually four sets. And what was that? Were you covering Beatles songs and doing originals and blues? What, what kind of was, a... At that time, I was doing... Hopkins, John Lee Hooker, Elvis. Uh, during that particular time, I even had the hairdo and everything. You know, the yeah, there's some great pictures and, from that era. So, uh, and I could really sing like him you know, at that time. My voice was a lot higher then, and I could do it, you know. So I had a microphone that would fit around my neck. Guitar, bass, and drums, and I could get out and boogie a little bit, you know, <laughs> with it with a mic because I could walk over in the crowd and all that. So uh-huh. people came there to uh, hear the blues and to see this guy who sung like Elvis. Huh. Well, I think that opportunity to play week after week, night after night, set after set is sort of gone. You know, what do you what did you pick up from that? 
I think it was uh, $10 a night. <laughs> I mean, what'd you pick up? Wow, 10 bucks a night, you're getting rich. <laughs> but what'd you pick up uh, musically that, that you, what, you know, did, did you learn uh, anything or did you learn uh, I need to get some hits? was moving along real good. Uh, I hadn't started writing yet, but I had started playing a lot of things on the guitar that was has to come to you. You don't just sit every night and do the same licks. So then we moved on up to Corpus Christi and to another club, and I was playing there for probably two years, five nights a week. And I heard uh, on the radio, I heard um, Bobby Gentry uh, sing Ode to Billy Joe. And I heard that song, and I said, man, how real can you get, you know? Because I, I was Billy Joe, you know? I had been on the river and that kind of life. And so I decided if I ever wrote anything, I would write something real and something I knew about. And it probably wouldn't, uh, maybe a month later, Polk started coming and uh, Randy and I and Georgia started coming. Amazing. Because I'd been, I ate a lot of poke salad growing up <laughs> and I had been in uh, Georgia driving a truck down there for the highway. So so you're, you're working out your stuff, you're, you're starting to write some songs, but your first single I believe is 10 More Miles to Louisiana in 1966, produced by Ray Stevens, right? That was kind of a starting point of the thing. I mean, I love that record. It's uh, real different sounding than Tony Joe right, White. Yeah, it was kind of like a um, before I had really gotten on into the my own thing, it was like we was headed towards the album Black and White, which they let you record your songs on one side <laughs> and then hits on the other side. Interesting, yeah. So um, I remember just a little bit about it uh, when I was writing the song, and it was about going home, really. Ray was always cool, you know, in it, but it was just a matter of turning the amp on and the mic on and leaving me alone. You know? uh, that's what's best. Uh, yeah, you got, you got signed to Monument Records and uh, started to make black and white. Uh, meanwhile, the Beatles are exploding. It's like such a crazy time in the music business, and you've made this real laid-back, real southern sounding record, yet very popular. And like you said, it is interesting that you cover Little Green Apples and Wichita Lineman and Look of Love on that record, and you do a great job. You totally make those songs your own, but uh, recorded in Nashville with a bunch of great players. Uh, was it your first experience with like the session guys and all that? Was that at all nerve-wracking? It was the uh, first time you know, in the studio for me. And we had saved up enough money for me to uh, leave the club for a week and just go up there. And, and I had a few, a piece of raining out on the tape, piece of poke. So these these guys, when we actually went in and did poke and this whole thing, most of those boys were from Alabama, most of shows. And so it was like they were all up there in Nashville trying to make a living playing country music and uh as session players, so when I walked in and played them a little bit of my stuff, you know, everybody went, "Oh man, turn this on!" <laughs> so I give them a chance to speak the same language a little bit. Swamps, yeah, you know? that's great. Uh, you, you mentioned Willie and Laura Mae Jones. Uh, one of my favorite songs, of yours. And I'm going to ask you maybe if you can play it for us. Uh, it's a song that's been covered a bunch of times, and. Uh, Clarence Carter covered it, and when an African American guy sings that song, it brings a real different flavor to it. A real interesting song, and it makes me uh, want to ask you: 
what does it feel like when you hear somebody covering your song? And did you ever do you ever think that they've they've brought something to it that you know even you didn't know was in the song? I have usually through the years, anytime anyone cut one of the songs, I always really dug it, and it uh, always was something in it I'd go, with. oh man, that's cool the way they like. Do you mind doing a little bit of Willie and Laura May? Is that something that you like to do? A little bit early in the day for it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Do a piece of it. That's great. Come. song that's a pretty heavy song too you well, know I mean, if you keep it going you know it gets on into the whole story and about sitting on the porch and playing guitars with each other eating over to their place i'm eating at ours and it was just another place and another time because none of us thought about what the other one looked like you know so we depended on each other really yeah it's kind of a sad song too yeah because in the end Everybody moves off and goes separate ways. Yeah. And it's like a Shoes on to say goodbye to Willie and Laura May. Jones. Let's talk about Poke Salad Annie, and I think we need to talk about Old Man Willis which preceded Poke Sally Annie, and those two songs are cousins, I would say. You know, they're closely related. Can you play me a little bit of uh, Old Man Willis? And is that a real guy? Yeah. All, just about all these people, they're all real. Poke, Willis, Willie and Laura May. Most of all my stories are... The characters in them are people I knew. So you're growing up as a kid with seven brothers and sisters, and I bet there were some stories, you know, stay away from old man Wells' house and don't go, you know. Yeah, because uh, he, he made a little bootleg in the woods back there, you know, and he he worked it a lot himself, you know. And he had this big black stallion horse that he would, he would come 
rampaging down the old dirt road right in front of our house on that horse, and then he'd run the horse up on your porch, you know. And it's like me and Mama and my sisters and everybody sitting out there, and all of a sudden, here's old Willis with his horse standing on your porch. And usually drunk, you know. Yeah. And uh, so later on, when I wrote it, uh, I was playing in um, California, right outside of Los Angeles, in a coliseum with Credence Clearwater. And back in my dressing room later after the show, the guard came back and he said, uh, there's some people out here who don't want to see you really bad. They're from your spot. I said, where are they? He said, Goodwill. And I said, what's her name? And he said, Willis. Uh-oh. <laughs> and I said, girls? And he goes, yeah. So it was three of the sisters that come wow. to the show. And I thought, oh, God, man, they would come back here and wear me out <laughs> for writing about their dad and all that. But they came back, and it was just all hugs and cool, very oh, cool. Well, that's nice. <laughs> Can you play us a, just a portion about this whole this guy? He's crazy guy. Down in West Capel, about 20 miles of Arkansas. There's a man and his wife and four or five children Weirdest people I ever saw Old man and windows That's what everybody called him He used to chase his youngins and his wife With a double-bladed heart and nerve He had four coons, a cat, and a hound dog Stayed in the same house with him Ate from his dinner table Drank from his water bucket Slept in the same bed with him Old man with us That's what everybody called Everybody, it's Tony Joe White right here live at the mighty WFMU. Now, that song led to Poke Salad Annie, uh, which became one of those songs that just transcended every genre, you know, and made all, all the charts all around the world. It was a hit, and it got covered uh, hundreds of times, I gotta guess. Your life must have changed drastically, but uh, in the studio, when you were recording that song, you know, you're a young guy, and it's your first time in the studio, and uh, I think Billy Swan is the producer. And, you know, you're cutting Burt Backrat songs and cover songs and some of your songs. Did they stop and say, this, we got something here that's very special, or was it just another song on that first album? No, Pork Saddle was, like I said, these boys were all needing to play a little funky stuff by then. So they had a big ass. <clears throat> Tub, it was a big old tub of cold beer, ice down right in the middle of the studio, and everybody was just one take that we'd nailed Polk. Oh, really? And so everybody was listening to the playback, and the cold beers were flowing, everybody was dancing, dancing <laughs> with each other, even you were going to get around. And uh, just everybody was really 
up with it. It's like we couldn't hardly go on to the next tune because we just kept playing it back uh. and back. And the president of Monument, Fred Foster at that time, he comes in, and it's about nine at night, and we're all in there just rocking, man. By now we've moved on to another tune. When we come back in there, studio, and they go, play play Fred the, the Pope song. So they played it again, and it got through, and everybody was just... I mean, it was by then like a nightclub. And, <laughs> and he said, well, Tony Joe is going to have to redo this. And uh, Bob Beckham, the publisher, and Fred were like partners in Monument at that time. Beckham said, what? He said, well, you can't clear your throat on a record. So it was like in poker, <clears throat> like that. The grunt. He thought I was clear. Oh, uh, that's funny. So they quietly <laughs> put their arm around his shoulder and led him back out to the alley and <laughs> sent him back to his office. Oh, wow. <laughs> Crazy. But he didn't hear that as a single, or he did? Because it took a while he, for that thing to break. He had no idea what I was doing because he hadn't <laughs> been around anything like that. you know. And he had some great artists, Roy Orbison yeah. and all these people, but he hadn't heard any swamp things, you know. So... Um, we knew it, knew it was cool, knew it was happening. We went back to the club in Corpus Christi, Texas, again, $15, $10 a night. But we had this reel-to-reel tape with my songs on one, the, you know, the black and white. And at the club, we started, people were coming there to hear Pokes at Atlantic because I'd been singing it for a year before I even cut it. And they had this dance called the Gator. Like they would all get on the floor. Like Roy Head is the, the yeah. king of the Gator. Yeah. And the women and the men all would come in that club to dance. It was just me and a Coke box and my electric Gibson, I think, at that time. And they come in there and just to dance, man, and requested probably ten times a night. So we started calling Monument and ordering five hundred to a thousand at a time. And they sent us singles that had not for sale on it, demos only, but still charged us money for them. <laughs> so we were still going to die marking them out with a magic marker, you know, marking out not for sale. And selling probably 1500 2000 a week uh, at these clubs wow. all around Texas. So that went on and on for about seven or eight months. And uh, KRLA in Los Angeles picked it up after the ninth month and all of a sudden it went on their playlist and then of course everybody jumped on it by then but in the meantime before Polk settled in and all that was going on there was a song off that same side called Soul Francisco which was about the flower children you know and it I get a call in Corpus from Paris France this child wants to do an interview about my number one record in Paris, France. And I'd never been nowhere but loose hand in Texas near <laughs> this guy. We could barely understand each other. I said, what are you talking about? And he goes, Mr. White, you must understand you have the number one record in France right now. I said, well, what is it? <laughs> he goes, so Francisco. So we talked for about an hour and on the radio, and then 
right after that, a tour jumps up. Eight weeks over in France, Germany, England, all through there, just me and a guitar. And in the meantime, back over here, Polk kicked in. But the first one happened over there. Yeah, that's a crazy story. Yeah, it took... Who knows what would have happened? I know. It was a funny thing. I think the guitar kicked him because that was when I was using the... The Whomper a good bit, the Wah. Yeah, I was going to ask, the San Francisco has that wow. Yeah. Kind of, who, yeah. Where did you get one of those things? But it was Wah, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's in your face. My drummer at that time, his father owned a music store in Corpus Christi. And he come to the club one night and he said, you got to come down to the store tomorrow and listen to this pedal. And I never used any pedals or anything, and... I plugged up to it, and the way I patted my foot with it just went straight oh, into my guitar. And, and everybody in the store was going, God, what is that? <laughs> so from then on, it was a part of the whole deal, and I've still got that. Oh, wow. And I still use it on stage, yeah. It must have cost you a couple weeks' wages at that time. Then. At that time, I think it was probably around 45 $50, and yeah. You can sell yeah. it on eBay if you ever get, uh, you know. A little I think they let me have it on credit for I paid it out. <laughs> a couple of bucks a week. Uh, so your life changed. I mean, you know, all of a sudden you went from being this guy who didn't travel a lot to going around the world to having all these songs covered. And I'm guessing that you did you sign a decent deal? You know, you always hear about the guy who signs it all away when he was 18 or whatever. Did you have a, a good piece of the publishing and all that? Yeah, I had a. Uh my own publishing going by the second album, you know. Uh, so you had all this money rolling in. Did it blow your mind? Did it change your life? Or did you manage to stay on an even keel or a little of both? A little of both, maybe. But I was very lucky, I, like I said, to have wrote those two songs in the beginning because they helped me, Polk and Rainey helped me to be able to travel the world and play music like I want, like I want to play it, you know. Your second record uh, called "Continued" nineteen sixty nine, rainy night in Georgia. Brooke Benton covers it nineteen seventy. Giant, giant hit. I mean, it's a, and again, it's one of these songs that you just want to cry when you're hearing. I mean, that guy, his voice is a lot like yours too. It's very deep, you know. And uh, when you heard that, do you remember where you were the first time somebody said, "Hey, you got to hear this record"? This guy just did your song. Yeah, I was. By then, I had moved, I think, to Memphis by then. I might have moved up there by then. It came in the mail. Uh, Jerry Wexler, the producer, had mailed it to my house, and I had an old turntable, and I played it, I played it probably 50 times in a row. <laughs> because when I recorded it, I was mostly in the fast, swamping, stomp songs, and I almost didn't put that on the album, you know. And Leanne, she said, you know, you're really messing up. You need to sing that, put it on there. So Donnie Fritz, a songwriter from Alabama, was at the session and I, and uh, made him a copy of the tape. He said, I got somebody I want to send this to. And he's the one that sent it to oh. Wexler and uh, Six months later, I heard it, and I went, God, i got to learn this, man. <laughs> it was like, 
And you got to buy Donnie beautiful. Fritz a beer sometime, yeah. Uh, we, in fact, we've wrote some good songs together. Can you years. play a little bit of a Rainy Night in Georgia for us? It's... Sweat over these, or do they just pop out of you? No, it was during that time when I said, I, "If I ever write something, I'm gonna write something real." It's something I know, and it was I knew, like I said, I knew about Polk Saddle, and I knew about Rainy Nights in Georgia because I had left there when I got out of high school, Louisiana, went to Georgia and stayed with my sister for about eight months, and. I, drove a dump truck, and when it would rain, I would get to stay on, play guitar, and do my thing, you know. Pray for rain. <laughs> it's a great record. I, that may be your, even covered more than Polk Salad Andy. Is that possible? I mean, that record, even, th- I mean, just recently it's been covered. I mean, it never stops, you know. It's just everybody had something to say on that song, you know. Yeah, I forget of... Uh, the last time I heard, I think it was over 145 or 150 versions. I think it's a real testament to your songwriting. Something about it makes the songs covered by such a variety of people. And that song, uh, Ray Charles and uh, Tennessee Ernie Ford, and a lot of Jamaican guys love your songs. You know, there's lots of Jamaican, you know, and Aaron Neville, uh, Conway Twitty Shelby, Lynn, lots of people covered that song. It just... The base of it is just, you know, it's hard to mess up with that, you know, I guess, you know. Most all of all the versions, too, are very cool, you know. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, There's know, no bad ones. It's yeah. like in a real surprise was uh, just recent with Rod Stewart and uh, George Benson, their versions of it now. Man, it's like, I had no idea they were they even knew the song, you know. Awesome. <laughs> I guess. It's kind of mind-boggling to get money for something that you did, you know, in 1969 or something. You know? I mean, it's an amazing world to live in, you know. That's a great system, you know. <laughs> it's a thing like the writing, I've always put a lot of stock in it because of the fact that I have no choice about it. Songs come to me and go out, and I treat them right when they come by me, and try to cut them right and cut them for a good reason. Uh, 
not for commercial things or anything just because it comes by you and you lay it down you know so I think that's why the, that song in particular appealed to a lot of great artists and you know real good singers is because the simplicity of it in a way was something you could really get a hold and like, like I said Rod Church's latest version was he just killed it man and then you go all the way back to uh, Conway Twitty and Sam Moore with their version, yeah. the country version. I went, oh, very lucky. Yeah, it's well, it's a great song. It's got good bones, you know. Uh, 1970 record called Tony Joe. There's a song called The High Sheriff of Calhoun Parish. Now, is that a real story? Is that a, a, a legend? Is that something that you knew about? They're all real. Yeah. Like I said, The High Sheriff was. His name was... Uh, actually, his last name was Cross, but I I used Hiram Cross in it as a friend of mine who put me up for the night after I broke out of jail. So that's where that came from. Oh, broke out of jail? Where's that's not in my notes? Yeah, where did you, when did that happen? When did you manage to fit that in? It was in the High Sheriff the song because <laughs> uh, he had <laughs> thrown me in the clinker for. What he called molesting his daughter, which so it's an absolutely true story. Which wow. I hadn't, I yeah. hadn't molested her. She was a voluptuous, cool girl that liked music, you know. <laughs> but the sheriff and all that, and then I, like I said, Hiram Cross him put me up for a while, and it goes up. Would y'all mind if I sit down at your table? It's been a while since I had time to eat I'll pay you back when I'm able But right now the high sheriff is after me not molest her, his daughter in any no, way. Sir. <laughs> uh, you switch labels, Warner Brothers, and your first record there, Jerry Wexler and Tom Dow produced, I believe. Both guys passed away fairly recently. Both worked on, those guys' names are on a lot of really good records. Huge. Yeah, and recorded in Muscle Shoals, so everything's just right, it seems like, uh, on that record. What was it like working with those guys? Uh, what does Jerry Wexler, because he's not like a great musician, wasn't a great songwriter, but he was a great producer, I guess. He was, and, and Tom Dowd, both of them, you know, were they were really into R&B and bluesy type stuff and had sent word that they wanted to cut a little swamp music with me and, and do it in most of the shows. So it was just right on because all them boys down there had played with me on Pope in RCA at the, in Nashville before they all started doing good with most of the show sounds and they all moved back down. And Jerry and them was cutting a good many records there at that time. So yeah, that was their magic secret. I mean, send guys down there and have hits, you know. I know. It was really cool working with uh, 
New York boys, you know, it was good. Like Jerry, he was all I loved his old accent and everything, and he made a lot of fun of mine. And we had a lot of fun just hanging, you know. But he was the real deal. Oh, solid man, just real as you can get. In fact, I talked to him, uh, probably a month or two before he passed away, which was what just a year ago or yeah, ten just months, about. and it was still. Tony, you know, like, like that. And I said, how you doing, man? Well, you've been keeping you swimming up. And he was still swimming laps at, in his 80s, exercising, listening to music, keeping up with what was happening on the radio. Loved me, loved music. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple songs on there. I Got a Thing About You, Baby, Elvis, another song Elvis picked up on. Billy Lee Riley also did a great version of that. It doesn't sound anything like his Rockabilly sides. Uh, another great song. Uh, could you give us a little bit of I Got a Thing About You, Baby? Is that one you like to do? It's another one of those songs that's just adaptable, you know, it's just... family while you're doing all this how many kids have you got it's three uh, my girl michelle she's a singer la she's she's got a record deal out of paris france again back over france takes over again you know so she's got an album out over there right now and then uh jody my son does all of this the producing managing and network the whole thing record company he runs it all so everybody's kind of like keeps it in the family but um those kids kind of raise me so <laughs> well that's nice uh you've uh you've never really stopped making records you know you've been pouring them out your last few have been uh obviously efforts that you put some work into you know a lot of collaboration stuff and uh this new one is called the shine it's on swamp records and uh i've heard I, the first word i thought of was spooky it's a, one of your spookiest records you know i mean it's very you gotta it's deep you know what i'm saying <laughs> i've heard that word a few times uh, have you across the land really on phones and interviews and stuff that the record was spooky but I really don't have a a 
real scary song on there. True. But there's the a spookiness to the voice and... And the way we cut it, you know, it's an old house I've had for a long time there in Franklin and high ceilings back in the war days. All wood, and uh, we have a 16-track analog tape and drums in one room, the bass player set up, me in this room with an engineer. In the so it's just three of us, and I would play them just a piece of, each, of a song. And uh, and I'd say, turn it on. Just play whatever comes comes out. Because usually the first takes of things, man, it's hard to beat. Hmm. And a lot of them songs came out that way. And this time I felt like I was almost uh, a bystander just sitting and watching all this happen. Even while I was playing and singing it, it was, everything was just rolling along, you know. It was like, that old house may had some musicians or something in it at one time watching over us. But anyway, Jody producing, choosing the tune, picking the songs, and all I did was stay close to the guitar and song and the drummer and bass. It was uh, Tina's drummer, by the way. Tina Turner's Jack Bruno was... Yeah, you produced a Tina Turner record, I think, 1989, one of her sort of comeback records... Foreign affair, right? Yeah, yeah, that's it. You've we've worked with some awesome people. Uh, when you're writing songs like this, does politically what's going on in the world? Does the what's on the in the newspaper? Does that influence the tone of of the songs at all, or is it? Um, no, especially politics. I never think about that thing too much with it. Like I said, I don't really think about too much when I'm trying to write something because I'll be walking around and a guitar lick comes in my head or a line or a word. And then it'll stay with me for a few days and finally I'll get a few cold beers, acoustic guitar, go down to the river and build a fire and sit with it for a few nights, you know. So writing that way and cutting this way maybe were the word spooky comes from because That's it's, interesting. I've been down by the river nights and heard a panther howl while I was right in the middle of trying to get one wrote things like that so all this stuff kind of hangs around you that is a little spooky uh, you've been on tour you're not the young man you once were is it still fun is it tiring is it time are you going to do this forever What what's what happens <laughs> I mean, you know you don't think about um how long you'll write or anything because I think as long as a song keeps coming to me I'd probably want to go sing it for somebody and still feeling good and it's still yeah and uh, I don't stay out you know it's like three week, two to three weeks is using my deal unless it's Australia or Europe and then I'll probably stay a month over there but just because you go so far and so many people are glad you came you know but I enjoy writing, and uh, if I stay on the road too long, I hardly ever write much. But I do go home and get back on the river again, and the road sometimes is where the line will come from, or the guitar lick, or something you heard in a cab or an elevator. So you got to do both, yeah. Uh, Could you wind us up here with a little bit of Polk Sally and Annie? We never did actually get to to hear any of that song, and I think some people might want to hear it. 
Let's see, last night I think we did it 15 minutes long. (laughs) I'll just do a piece, okay? Tony Joe White. All right. Thank Great. you, man. Tony Joe White, you're absolutely for real, you know. It's, uh... <laughs> <laughs>